Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? We have a national emergency going on right now. It's about our kids. It's about the tragic loss of life. But the emergency is what that loss has done to our hearts. I want you to know we can be a part of the solution. Let's talk about it. Pull up a chair. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Josh Mitchell, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of Pull Up a Chair, a place to unpack our beliefs, unlearn our myths, and uncover ourselves. I would be remiss if I said today was a bright day in America. Please don't get me wrong. There's a countless roll of credits and congratulations to play. So much for us to be grateful for as a nation and as individuals. We just celebrated Juneteenth. We're witnessing some of the largest graduating classes from public universities, even through the pandemic. And on the subject of the pandemic, COVID cases seem to be on the decline. But during this summer season that should be packed with celebrations, cookouts, barbecues, grab parties, weddings, we're also reeling. We're grieving. May of 2022 was marked by tragedy. Two mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas, to be more specific. They brought up an array of emotions, sadness, grief, heartbreak, confusion, anger, tiredness, frustration, outrage. It also exposed, not created, division in this country regarding how we process the death of children, how we respond to gun violence, I want to talk about how we approach conversations about tragedies like these and how to find common ground. In last week's episode, we talked about why it's difficult to discuss race. It seems to bring up tension right away, even though it's a topic we cannot ignore, even if we tried. It seems that far too often we find ourselves in the same position about mass shootings. But this is more layered. The issue of race is, in some ways, quite literally black and white. Mass shootings are littered with all different shades of gray. It's conflicting because in a shooting, you have the perpetrator, the gunman. You have the victims and then you have the community that's left. But then you also get legalism, laws, technicalities mixed and minced in there. And it leads people to think, if you don't view the issue as black and white, you are disrespecting the dead. You're ignoring, you're brushing over the, the lives that were lost. It gets tense. It gets heavy. But at our core, we share a grief. All our hearts should break at the loss of life. And that's exactly what we witnessed in early May. May 14th, to be more specific, in the Buffalo shooting. According to reports, on May 14th, a mass shooting occurred in Buffalo, New York. There were 10 people who were slain as they were grocery shopping at a supermarket called Topps Friendly Market Store, which is on the east side. Now, all 10 of the victims were black. All 10 of the victims were were older men and women, the majority of which were senior citizens. 
not only were 10 people killed, but three people were injured. In the wake of this shooting, the facts that stood out were, number one, all of the victims were African-American or black in a predominantly black neighborhood, although the gunman, who was not from that neighborhood, was a white male. There were hints of another shooting, June 17th, 2015, a church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, where once again, a cluster, this time of nine black men and women, were gunned down by a white assailant who was welcomed into the church. This past week actually marked the seven-year anniversary of that shooting. The second fact that stood out to me and that made headlines was that the assailant was not from Buffalo. It happened in a supermarket out in the open during the evening time. And the Buffalo shooting suspect says his motive was to prevent eliminating the white race, which is a quote. This is being investigated as a hate crime. And tensions arise when we bring that term up because it immediately shifts the issue to race. Some might even say, why are we making this a racial thing? People were dead. Why are we once again making it racial? But I want to clarify, this situation was not made racial. It began racial. It was racial from the jump. A simple fact of life is before any action happens, there is a thought. Even if you don't think you just do, there is a thought that comes before every action. No one wakes up and randomly decides to shoot 10 people in a supermarket. There is premeditated thought behind that, even if it comes from the mind of someone who is not mentally well. That's something to be sensitive to, not something to overlook. But the fact of the matter is, this issue began racial. Last week, we talked about why that brings up tension. The truth triggers. People feel that their identities are being called into question. Their character, their dignity, their self-worth, their ability to relate to people who are not like them. But the fact of the matter is, this situation was an attack of one man against a group of community members because they were black. A report from NPR reads, the white man who killed 10 black people at a Buffalo supermarket made his first appearance in federal court on hate crime charges on Thursday, June 16th. And the judge urged prosecutors to quickly decide whether to pursue the death penalty, given the substantial cost of those cases. In a brief proceeding, presiding magistrate judge H. Kenneth Schroeder said Peyton Gendron was able to be represented by public defenders based on his financial situation. He had been held without bail since his arrest, which also caused three people to be wounded, killing 10. These are the facts. These are the facts. The gunman claimed his motive in shooting these 10 victims was to preserve the white race. Why is that? 
why is it that this fact must be detailed? Why is it that we need to talk about it? Well, because in a conversation this tense, especially when it comes to mass shooting, we need to get to the heart. And when I say the heart, I'm not merely talking about the heart of the situation. I'm talking about the heart of the responders, your heart. Remember, the first step in bridging the gap in a conversation is to unpack your beliefs. What do you believe and what do you feel? At our core, there will always be some level of dissonance, some level of discomfort, some level of pain when you hear about someone dying. It doesn't matter if they died peacefully in their sleep at the age of 99 or they were gunned down at the age of 12 in a school. There is some pain. The reaction is much different. But death is never a happy thing. We find beauty in it. And spiritually, a lot of us find relief in it. But it is never a happy thing. At our core, we believe that the death of a person is sad. Then, once the details come up, we build around that sadness. Maybe at the core, there's anger. Maybe at the core, there's denial. Maybe at the corner, excuse me, at the center, not the corner, but at the center, there's some level of confusion or anxiety. But we all believe at our core that the death of a human being is a sad situation. Not always a tragedy, but always sad. This, on the other hand, is a tragedy. Why? Because of what led to it. I'm sure you've heard about the victims who were churchgoers, who were grandmothers, who were aunts and uncles. I'm sure you've heard about the lady who was the primary caretaker of her husband, who is now a widower because she just happened to be in the wrong place, a grocery store, at the wrong time. None of us would deny that this is a tragedy. But why does a conversation like this become tense? In the situation of the Buffalo shooting, one of the main indicators is race. But that's not all. It's also the weapon of choice. While our gut reaction would likely be just as appalled or saddened or disappointed if this assailant had used a knife or a bomb or they had passed away in any other fashion, when we bring up the machine, there's another layer about our beliefs, our beliefs about guns, their safety, how they should be used whether they're practical or not, whether they're efficient or not, whether a possession of a certain type of gun should be legal or not. We have to unpack those beliefs coming into a conversation. The next step is to unlearn our myths. What are some myths that could be presented in this case of the Buffalo shooting in New York? Why are our hearts heavy? One myth I think that's possible is the myth of the straw man. We take this assailant in Charleston 
it was a man by the name of Dylan Roof. In Buffalo, it was a man by the name of Peyton Gendron. We take the name of this man and we make him what's called a straw man. Some figure, some caricature. Those people, we other him. We separate him. We categorize him in this freakishly small box. He's the anomaly. Think of it like this. When you go to the zoo, you know what animals you're likely to see. You know, the lions, the tigers, the bears, the zebras, maybe a koala, maybe a flamingo. But there are other sea creatures there that you've never heard of. Just think, they had a budget too. They have an exhibit too. But if you ask a child, which animal are you here to see? Or which animal here is your favorite? You're very unlikely to hear someone say it. No one there is probably going to say the gecko or the salamander, but they're there. So we just other them. You know, we'll, we'll get around to them when we get around to them. They're cute too, but they're not the main attraction. They're not in any way the majority. Don't we categorize criminals, assailants, perpetrators, defendants the same way? I mean, yeah, it's really bad that this white man killed 10 black people, 10 innocent, unarmed, vulnerable black people in a supermarket. But I mean, that's not likely. That's just that one person. You know, most people aren't like that. And honestly, at my core, I believe that's true. I understand why we think that way. How common is it? How common is it for someone to take up a weapon that could kill and open fire freely in a grocery store for no apparent reason? He did not know these victims. He wasn't motivated by his hatred of them. He didn't know their names, their lifestyles. He didn't know their story. But what was the thought that led him to that point? We could only speculate. That wouldn't do us any good. That wouldn't unlearn a myth. That would probably just cause another one. But how often do we, following the death of ten, Overlook the life of the one who remains, the killer. He is a soul too. He is a person too. I'm not asking you to sympathize with him, nor am I asking you to side with him. I'm asking you to consider him. What about this man, Peyton Gendron, needs to be remembered by us? For the Christian, like myself, I remember the words of Jesus who says, pray for your enemies, for the optimist, even the toxic optimist. There might be the sentiment, maybe one day he'll come around, he'll apologize like the killer of Botham Jean apologized to Botham's siblings and family. But the realist, the realist that can mix and marry the optimist and the pessimist. At our core, the black and white facts state 10 people are dead. They were killed by one person. 
who was quoted as saying his motive was to prevent eliminating the white race. The writings in this federal hate crimes case, which is based partly on the documents that Gendron detailed in his plans for the attack, include a semi-automatic rifle, body armor and clothing, and a portable camera that would allow him to stream the massacre live. The writings that were taken from Peyton Gendron in the investigation include, quote, statements that his motivation for the attack was to prevent black people from replacing white people and eliminating the white race and to inspire others to commit similarly racially motivated attacks. This is according to a complaint, a complaint that was filed by a witness and a member of the Buffalo community. This quote comes from a report from NPR that was released on June 16th, 2022. So what do we take from this? What myths? What misconceptions could we possibly have? Not just about the people involved, but about the other people that we are unlikely to talk to about this. Is it the white man that you don't think will be empathetic? Is it the black girl that you think just makes everything too political? Because at the end of the day, we filter out all these thoughts based on our grief. We share a grief in common. Tensions do arise when we bring up race. But remember, this issue was not made racial. It began racial. It was racially motivated. And once again, we're faced with the fact that we can't escape conversations on racial injustice, on inequity. Once again, the people at the minority table are talking. And we share what's called a fictive kinship. You notice you might see a black man call another black man a brother. Or a black girl call another black girl a sister, a black woman. In minoritized people groups, we tend to share a bond that's based on an assumed connection, a default connection, regardless of your upbringing, simply based on the color of your skin. Why? Because their ancestors were oppressed. They were socialized based on the color of their skin. That's what we share in common. Right now, I am interning in Pennsylvania, even though I am from Ohio and attend the Ohio State University. But even here, when I bring up my college, I get a certain reaction because people assume something about me. I have a coworker who's also from my hometown, Columbus. And immediately upon meeting her, I knew we would share some sort of connection, even though I didn't even know her last name, just because the fact that we were born in Columbus gives us some kind of common ground. It's the same way in this reaction. But also, we must remember, as a people, we share a common ground, which is our grief. We can all agree that the loss of human life is a tragedy. We start to defer in our reactions 
And if you thought the Buffalo shooting was tense, the shooting of 19 school children, school-aged youth at Robb Elementary on May 24th in Uvalde, Texas, is a whole nother story. On May 24th, an 18-year-old by the name of Salvador Ramos fatally shot 19 school students. 21 people were reported dead, including two teachers. Additionally, he shot his grandmother in the forehead at her home prior to the shooting, which severely wounded her. When we got the news of what happened in Uvalde, there were layers of processing in this. Again, it could not be just black and white. We couldn't simplify this. We couldn't put it under a rug. We couldn't write it off. Speaking personally, we are nearly a month removed from this shooting and I am shaken up. It's difficult even for me to talk about it right now, but I know that I should. I wonder what went through Salvador's head. I wonder how the parents of the deceased children are feeling, how they're coping. I wonder what the scene is like in Uvalde right now. What it's like just to drive down the highway. What it's like just to go to the store. I wonder if there's still this eerie nature, if talking about it is an unspoken rule. I wonder what, what bond the citizens of Uvalde share having gone through such a horrific incident. But I most wonder how we talk about it. There are layers of processing this because there are children involved. To slightly lighten the mood, I think about a scene from the Incredibles Disney movie where Mrs. Incredible travels to a remote island to find her husband who's been trapped by the villain, Syndrome. What she doesn't know is her kids stowed away on the plane with her. The villain Syndrome sees on his radar that an, an unidentified, excuse me, an unidentified plane is on the way. So he sends missiles to take it down. Mrs. Incredible, fearing for her life and for her children, reports over their communication system, there are children involved, there are children involved. And that's when the mood changes. Because see, it would be one thing for this superhero to lose her life as a good guy because the bad guy shot her down. But it's different because her babies are in that plane with her. Our hearts are tender and sensitive towards young children, as they should be. And although it's under tragic circumstances, it binds us together, our heartbreak over the loss of these 19 children. There were children involved. Let's just take a second to unpack that. What do we believe about children? What do we believe about our kids? 
as an older sibling, it's easy to think of kids as a nuisance sometimes. Now, I'm a social work major specializing in child welfare. I'm planning to make a career out of serving children. But even the man or woman who thinks kids are annoying can still find that kids are valuable or would still emphatically agree they don't deserve to die. Why is that? Well, it's their innocence. It's, it's their youthfulness. It's the fact that they have so much untapped potential. At our core, do you believe children ought not die because they haven't lived enough yet? Is your reaction to a 74-year-old woman being killed different from a 14-year-old girl being killed? Well, yeah, probably. It's not that she wanted the 74-year-old to die, but in your mind, you can rationalize it as you're grieving by saying, well, at least she had a legacy. At least she lived 74 years. Death is death. But it stings different. Remember, as we said last week, we all bleed the same. Yes. If I get cut, I'll bleed red just like you. But we bleed for different reasons. Different triggers, different stories. We're all aching this time, though. Why? Because there were children involved. Another layer to unpack. Once again, is the weapon of choice. This case, this shooting took place less than two weeks after the Buffalo shooting. So in 11 days time, a total of 31 people were shot dead in just those two situations alone. All of them died by gunfire. So then we start to talk about what would have happened Another belief at our core. This is known as bargaining. When we heard the news that there was a shooting, a school shooting, immediately we went into two stages of grief, whatever two they are. One, you were grieving just on a surface level because someone died, right? So you're alerted that someone died. That's, that's rough. That's tough. That's hard news to bear. But then on the second hand, you know that the people who were shot were children. Now, we tend to group grief into five stages. There's denial. There's anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. There's no one stage that always happens first. Some people start at anger. Some people start at depression. Some people start at denial. It's difficult, but it's possible to even start with acceptance. But when we throw in this extra layer of the gun that was used, I think the most common stage, the most common destination for us as a people in the way we process this is bargaining. What, what could have happened? My mom calls these the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. What should have, could have, would have happened that would make this situation different? We've read reports that there was a back door on the back left side of the building. 
that was left unlocked. The assailant entered this door. Reports indicate that a teacher had previously propped that door open, but reports that they had shut the door prior to the incident. How that door got unlocked and stayed unlocked remains a mystery. But oh, we think if that door would have just been shut, what would have happened? Some of us tilt our scope toward the assailant, the gunman. Mr. Ramos, what led him to this point? What, what despondency must have lied in this young man to want to harm himself, end his own life, to shoot his grandmother, and then 19 children? What must have gone through his head? Others of us say, well, if he just simply did not have a gun, then this would have never happened. All we needed to do was take the weapon out of this kid's hand. If that young man had another weapon of choice, the situation could have been de-escalated a lot faster. Maybe the police who responded would have felt more emboldened to charge into the school without fearing that they would be shot because he didn't have a gun. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has described the 18-year-old who was eventually shot dead by law enforcement as the sheer face of evil. Once again, we're othering this boy. Do you stop to consider the fact that perhaps his grandmother is grieving him? Salvador Ramos was also someone's child. The title of this episode is The Kids Are Not Okay, not only because there were children at that school, children in Buffalo who witnessed the crime, who are forever affected by it, but also because everyone involved, up to the oldest victim in Buffalo, was someone's child. Isn't that an identity we all share? Whether we are firstborn or an only child, whether we grew up with our parents or without them, a blended family, a traditional nuclear family, a separated family, from the moment we were born, from the moment our, our mothers found out they were pregnant with us, we were somebody's child. And that's a piece of your identity no one can ever take away. You are someone's kid. The kids, the descendants of the, of the victims in Buffalo, the classmates in Uvalde, the family members of the gunmen are not okay. And unfortunately, that is something that we must process together. Now, when we talk about the gun, we must talk about the Second Amendment. We know, and I'll, I'll read it as a quote, this is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. As we know, this was ratified prior to July 4th, 17, excuse me. This was, this was ratified after 
July 4th, 1776, after the founding of the nation. It is the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights. It was ratified on December 15th, 1791, and it has stayed in effect for over 230 years as a result. The Second Amendment is not going anywhere. But some people are offended. I choose not to use the word triggered as a, a form of a play on words. But some people are jolted even by the discussion of stripping this boy, this man, this young man of his gun because it leads to a discussion about whether or not we have the right to bear them. Unfortunately, for the sake of this episode, that is a conversation that we that we are not going to delve into individually. But as it relates to the way we process grief. Why is it? That a conversation on a machine should ever supersede the conversation on a person. The fact of the matter is these children are dead. These Buffalo residents are dead. And they cannot return to their families. Our hearts break for that. Following these shootings in Ohio on June 13th. A bill was passed and signed into law that allows Ohio residents to conceal and carry a firearm without a permit. There was one school of thought that said this was a convenience, a relief. The removal of a hassle in taking the handgun safety class, the concealed carry class, paying for the permit, renewing it every five years. But there was another school of thought that said, why isn't this just going to lead to more people dying? Whichever camp you fall into, we can agree the use of a firearm to slay an unarmed child is a tragedy. We can be united in this front, in this regard. We can also be united in the way that we value a child. Folks, a lot of us believe that children are the future. We're grieving in Uvalde because we believe that these children did not get to experience their future. That in itself is horrible. It is heartbreaking. But also be reminded, this death should be processed and grieved simply because that child was a person in the present. Each and every one of these people had their lives cut short. The difference between the oldest victim in Buffalo and the youngest victim in Uvalde is over 60 years. But each of these people had their lives cut tragically short. Yes, these children are the future. They are our future, but they are also our present. Our present meaning they are valuable right now and our present meaning they are a gift and they are not okay. So what's our role? What do we do? Our role is to affirm their identity to the children in your life, to the children in your view, to the children in your scope, your sphere of influence. Hug them tighter, not because you're, you're afraid that they're going to die. Hug them tighter, not merely because your heart is broken over this isolated incident. Hug them tighter to remind them that you see them. Children need to be seen. Children need to be known 
And children need to know that they are affirmed in their identity. Regardless of your role, your relationship, or your job title, your, your responsibility, not your privilege, but your responsibility to children just as a member of society is to serve them and to protect them. Just as you ought to have been served in your childhood. We unite in that. Our role is to bless them, to gift them. I'm reminded of a, of a story in the Bible in Mark chapter 10 of Jesus picking up little children and blessing them. Not for who they would be someday, but to give them an identity in him as children right now. The blessing you could give a child is a smile, your time of day. The blessing that you can give a child is your attention. The blessing that you give a child is your presence with them. But let us be united in that. Because when people unite as a front, even in their differences, their force is unstoppable. Think about the differences socially, politically, even some, economically. In the founding of this nation. This nation was founded on the backs of white men and women seeking to be free from a regimented government in Europe and black men and women who were objectified and dehumanized and seen as cheap labor. They were not united in any way. That is why now we not only celebrate July 4th as the founding of the United States, but June 19th, 1865 as the inception of the freedom of that black man and that black woman. So this division is older than the United States itself. Yet and still we have an anniversary of both. Why? Because of the union of the American troops prior to July 4th, the union that led to the Declaration of Independence, the union that led to the stateside forces, not only leaving Britain, not only leaving England, but defeating them on what would become their home turf. That's how this nation was founded. The civil rights era was 100 years removed from this civil war, which was a united front of the Union, slaves and free men fighting over what core issue? Slavery. That led to Juneteenth. The civil rights era was not only the Dr. Kings of the world, it was not only the Malcolm X's of the world, but the Mahalia Jackson's, the Ralph David Abernathy's, the Rosa Parks. I don't even have time to list them all. It was the Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Even though a lot of their methodology was different, they united as a force. And as a result, as a black man in America today, I have privileges. We can even go back to scripture to ancient times and look at the Tower of Babel, God himself 
in Genesis chapter 11 observed that the people were a united front. And he said, if they are united, nothing will be impossible for them. So just like a family reunion that's called together because of the death of a loved one, the loss of a family member, we are united under unfortunate circumstances, this time by our grief. But this instance is a chance for a conversation that heals and recenters our focus on our priorities, which should be our children. So as we close, ask yourself, who is at your table? With whom do you need to have a conversation and process your grief? Unpack it. Unlearn some of these myths because in uncovering yourself and seeking to understand, we become a united front. That is our solution. Our unity for the sake of the children, not just young people, because everyone is someone's child. Our unity will cause us to see each other differently. And when we see each other and value each other the same across the board, we will treat each other as more valuable. And as a result, we as a society will be stronger, healthier. We will be okay. We are grieving right now. And thoughts and prayers are not enough. But we have hope. The kids will be okay. Thank you for pulling up a chair. <laughs>